So good. If you got your Bibles, on up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Last weekend I started into an exploration of four opening prayers that Paul included in his letters to the Thessalonians, the Colossians, the Ephesians, and the Philippians. We're looking at them in that order. That's not the way they show up in the Bible, but we're looking at them in that order because that's the order that he wrote them in. And in each one of these opening prayers, there are some foundational truths and some spiritual concepts that are good for us to lock into our hearts and minds any time of the year, and all the more so in a fresh way at the start of a new year. Although Paul originally addressed these letters to the specific churches, all these opening prayers, they still live on. And each one is still awaiting their fullest fulfillment in and through the lives of people like us. Paul drafted this letter to the Colossians from his house arrest prison quarters in Rome. Paul had never been to Colossae, so what he knew about this new church was gathered from his conversations with Epaphras, who uh, had started the church in Colossae in Philemon's home probably during the three years that Paul was ministering about 100 miles away in Ephesus. Colossae was a crossroads center for trading, which also made it a mixed bowl for ideas and religious philosophies. And when Paul wrote this letter around 60 AD, one of his intentions was to combat the syncretistic teaching that uh, was contaminating the pure and simple truth of the gospel and creating some spiritual confusion for the believers in Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. In what at first glance can read like a very standard introductory remark, there are some heat-seeking exhortations and applications looking for a home in our hearts. For instance, Paul once again included grace and peace to you, which, like I shared last weekend, is better recognized and understand as here, here, take another, take another dose of grace, take another dose of peace. It wasn't meant just to be read. It was meant to be experienced. It was meant to be received. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. But even his first line is more than what it seems. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We're probably all familiar with uh, Paul's dramatic uh, Damascus Road conversion experience. Paul was uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was so zealous. He was after the early church. He was killing Christians. He was finding and killing Christians and felt good about that whole process. In his mind, he was serving God by doing that. And he was after it until one day on the way, on the Damascus Road, God met him, blinding light, knocked him off his horse. Now, I want to say that that doesn't happen very often. That's a rare thing. More often than not, it's with his kindness that God leads us with repentance. But God was kind enough with, to Paul to knock him off his horse and blind us. Some of us are a little stronger than others. Some of us need a little more something to get our attention than others. Uh, not throwing stones. I'm looking. I resemble that at times myself, you know. But anyway, Paul, Paul gets blinded for three days. And during that three days, he sees shipwrecks and stonings and uh, just all kinds of persecution and trauma that if he's going to follow Jesus, that's the cost for him. Now, if God had shown that to most of us, uh, most of us would have gone, um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. But if you're somebody that has to get knocked off a horse to find God, when he shows you that, what is like, oh yeah, that's in, that's what it is, I'm in, let's go. So that's where Paul was. Paul had met in that place. We know about his story. But for us today, this phrase, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, is meant to provoke us and remind us that every one of us who surrendered the control of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of how dramatic or not dramatic we consider our salvation experience to be, every one of us now lives with that same calling. While it's true that God has raised up some people who are capital A apostles and they help and build the church at large, all of us, by the will of God, are little A apostles. That word apostles means sent ones. Sent ones. Listen, every day we wake up, we're on mission. Every day we wake up, there's a reason and there's a purpose that we're still here. And God's got things he wants to do with us every single day. Franklin likes to say, how many ministers are in the room? The whole room. We're all his ministers. We're all on mission. We are all sent ones. We're not supposed to just be, I gave my life to Jesus and I got it. I'm holding on to it. And that's the end of the story. No, we give our lives to Christ. He, he comes alive in us. And then we are sent out into the world to demonstrate and show his love and his life and his truth and his kindness and his mercy to be his hands and his feet. That's what we're all created to be. By the will of God, apostles in Christ Jesus. To the holy and faithful in Christ at Colossae. In the King James, it says, to the saints rather than to the holy. And that's another good reminder of our new identity in Christ. And in line with Paul's efforts to strain out mixture for his original readers in Colossae, how about, how about, we, how about we let go of once and for all the crazy idea of, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I grew up hearing that my whole life. But listen to me. You know what that is? That is a built-in backdoor permission to just justify and keep sinning. That's what it is. Well, I can't help it. I can't help that I sin. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you can. Because you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. You've been set free from that life. In Romans, we've been set free from sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, more easily than we think, but we shouldn't be. And we shouldn't justify it when we are. That's stepping out of who we are. When, when we sin, we actually take Jesus off the throne of our life and we just do what we want to do, how we want to do it. That's messed up. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. Keep quit giving yourself justification and permission to sin. In the Amplified, it says, to the consecrated people of God. That's who we've each been chosen to be. The consecrated people of God. That's who we've been set apart by God to be as we live with him and as we live for him. And taking that up another notch, Paul added the descriptor to the faithful. And he purposely used a Greek word for faithful that means be believing, be believing. On the night that uh, Jesus was resurrected, his disciples had gathered in an upper room and they were scared to death. They, they didn't, they, Jesus had been telling them for a while had been coming, but they it just right over their heads. They'd missed the whole thing. And now they'd seen him die and they didn't know what was going on. And they were afraid for their lives. And so they're behind locked doors in the upper room when all of a sudden there's Jesus. He didn't come in through the door. He just came into the room. And they see him and he says, peace to you. And he wasn't just saying, peace to you. He released a wave of peace over the disciples when he said that. 
And they received it and they were overjoyed. And he said, look at my hands, look at my side. And they, they were like, oh, it's you, it's you. And, and then, he, then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And pretty much as quickly as he showed up, he was gone. Well, it was like, whoa, that was amazing. He was right here with us. They were talking about it. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. I don't know where Thomas was that night, but Thomas didn't make it. And when they were telling Thomas about all that happened, when the ladies were talking about it, and when the, guy, the disciples were talking about it, Thomas said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I will, I'm, I'm not going there. I, I mean, he'd been walking with these guys for quite a while. But he's like, unless I see it for myself, I'm not believing. Well, a week later, they're all back in the upper room again in the same spiritual funk they were in the week before. Now, they had seen Jesus. He had breathed on them. He'd spoken peace over them. But a week later, they're back. You know how I know they're in the same place? Because they still got the doors locked. But Thomas was there this time. And in comes Jesus. And he walked to Thomas and he said, here, look at the nail prints. Here, here's my, and Thomas falls, my Lord and my master. Then in my mind's eye, the next thing that happens is Jesus looks around that room and makes eye contact with every person in the room. When you're reading it in the scriptures, it almost sounds like he was just talking to Thomas. But I've just set the scene. Thomas wasn't the only one there that was in doubt that day. Thomas wasn't the only one there that wasn't sure about what was going on. None of them knew what was going on. That's why they're behind the locked doors, afraid for what was happening and not knowing what to do. And how do we do this without Jesus and all those questions? And I see Jesus looking around the room, making eye contact with every one of them. And then he said this, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. The message says, don't be unbelieving, believe. The King James says, don't be faithless, but believing. The Amplified says, stop your unbelief and believe. Stop doubting and believe. That stop is a definitive action word. And when I was working on it this week, I just had this picture in my mind. Uh, one time I got a ticket because I did kind of a rolling stop. Yeah. Confession's good for the soul, right? I don't think when Jesus said stop doubting and believe, he meant just kind of roll through the stop sign and don't really stop. I think he meant stop. I think he meant stop. That word stop, uh, it can mean to cease, to discontinue to cut off, to restrain, even to put an end to. When you read this most literally in the Greek, it is stop actively disbelieving. Stop actively disbelieving. We all really do need to stop actively practicing unbelief. And it would also be a good idea to be serious about getting all unbelief out of our vocabulary and about taking every thought captive that is rooted in and aligned with a refusal or a reluctance to believe. Because listen, every agreement with unbelief hinders and quenches potential experiences with God. Every agreement with unbelief hinders and quenches potential experiences with God. Unbelief is not neutral. It always works within us to change us subtly and little by little into people who struggle with and who are unable to trust. Stop is a destiny appointment God wants all of us to have with doubt and unbelief. When Jesus said stop doubting and believe, 
Jesus's believe was the same word that Paul used when he wrote to the holy and faithful in Christ in Colossae. Rather than the used almost every time word for believe that means to have your faith in, to entrust your spiritual well-being to Christ, Jesus's believe and Paul's faithful are both best understood as meaning be believing. Jesus and Paul were both issuing a challenge to be actively believing people. Be believing is a superior and opposite reaction to doubt. No matter what the situation is, no matter how foreboding, overwhelming, or impossible things may seem, be believing is an ever-present, always available, present tense option. Be believing. Be believing. I love the be part because I found in a variety of situations in my life that it is so much better and so much more productive to focus on what I want to be rather than on the negatives like what I don't want to be and what I don't want to do. I found on both sides of that equation, there's a magnet. So when I think, I don't want to be, 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 I find myself walking right to that and doing the very thing that I said I didn't want to do. Sometimes like, I don't want to do that. And it's like our body goes, oh yeah, watch this then. You know, I mean, it's like even speaking it, it's a waste of time. Say, I don't want to, I don't want to. Say what you want to do. Speak what you want to do. Declare what you want to do. Set yourself, set your eye on who you want to be and keep moving that way. There's a magnet that draws us to it. And what we look at, we become. You spend all your time looking at what you don't want and you're going to become what you don't want. But spend all that time looking at Jesus and who you want to be and watch our lives start looking more and more like him. In and of itself, be believing is a serious paradigm shift. It takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of practice for it to become an instinctive response. Be believing is a cultivated mindset. It has a vocabulary to learn because our words have the power of life and death in them. Be believing also opens the way into discovering fresh new realms of wisdom, revelation, and creativity. And here's a spiritual truth. As we're faithful with a little be believing, God will entrust us with more of it. As we're faithful with just a little be believing, God will entrust us with more. And then check this out. Did you know that even just a mustard seed of be believing has the power, has the power and the solutions that we need to move mountains? Just a mustard seed of be believing is enough to move what looks to be immovable situations and circumstances in our lives. The essence of living a be-believing lifestyle is expressed in the confession of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Colossians 1 verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. The fellowship of believers in Colossae had a reputation. They were known for their faith in Jesus 
as well as for their love for all the saints. Ideally, every church on the planet would be known for that, for our faith in Jesus and for our love for all the saints. Here at Impact, for over 25 years now, the keep it simple combination of love God, love people has been a core part of our DNA. And we continue to operate with a strong desire for all of us to walk that out in real and tangible ways. Love God, love people. It really is that simple. Since September 2002, we've also had an open prophetic word over us and over this work in ministry that says, it's through our love for God and one another that we're gonna win the hearts of this community. Part of that word also says, be diligent to promote unity and to pursue it. Write it on your hearts. Other churches matter because what you think of them matters. And now for over five years, that mandate has been expanded to include five generations moving together as one to get it done. As it did in Colossae in 60 AD, so it does today. This kind of faith and love spring from our ability to access the hope that is stored up in heaven for us and to draw it down into our everyday lives. We access and draw upon that hope by maintaining a personal, ongoing, conversational relationship with God as we work out and walk out our salvation. According to the New Living Translation Study Bible footnote, the heresy in Colossae was that it took special knowledge to be accepted by God. The lie was that even those who claimed to be Christians, even in their lives, Christ alone was not the way of salvation. That was the lie. So Paul commended the Colossians for their faith, love, and hope, and he deliberately omitted the word knowledge in order to emphasize the truth that it's not what we know that brings salvation, it's who we know. And let me also just add, as important as who we know, even more significant is who knows us. One time Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father who's in heaven. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. And then these haunting words. And then I'll plainly tell them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Listen, the power of Jesus' name is always there. There is power in the name of Jesus. But the bigger issue is a personal relationship. And on that last day, Jesus is saying, there's going to be people who said, Lord, we did this and we did this and we did this and we did this in your name. Taking the credit for themselves, which reveals they don't know who it is. Now, we're supposed to be doing all those things, all those signs and wonders. That's, that's supposed to be a normal part of all our lives. But when it's happened, it's not, look what we did. It's like, oh, God, that was amazing. Thank, thank you for letting me be part of that. Thank you for filling me. Thank you for giving me the anointing to be part of that. And it creates this relationship with him. And that's the change. He gets the glory. We give him the glory rather than, whoo, ain't we something? It's not what we know that gets us saved. It's who we know. And even more importantly, who knows us. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. 
Today, we still get to be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. The active, fertile nature of the gospel that leads to bearing fruit and growing is what should be the natural result of people like us living in and understanding better and better the empowering presence of God's grace. The better we understand that we live and move and have our being as an expression of God's grace, the better we understand that, like the Colossians, our lives will overflow with the agape love in the Holy Spirit. Corporately getting to experience the love of the Spirit is such a special and precious thing. Listen, we're so blessed with what we get to experience every time we gather together as a body, be it in a home group or a youth group or nursery or kids things or when we're here for worship. There's just a sweetness, a presence of the Lord that, that is with us. And even in this place, you can, you can walk into this room any day of the week and it's like, whew, God is here. You can feel it. Before we ever built this building, this was just a grass lot and you could stand about right here and it was like, whew, God's gonna meet with people here. You could just feel it. I, I was part of the team that helped uh, get the empty cross established up in, in Kerrville. And before the cross was ever on that hill, standing there, we could stand on that hill and it was like, God is going to meet with people on this hill. And that same thing that we felt up there, you could feel right here. And you still feel it. For many years now, people, as we go through Discovery Group and they meet us, they said, I walked into this place and I felt loved. I felt accepted. I felt welcome. That is the love, the agape love of the Spirit. Now, it's on us to keep doing that, to keep being that, keep moving with it. But that's not about us. That's something bigger than us. That's the presence of the Lord resting on this place. And we are so blessed to get to experience. The love of the Spirit creates an atmosphere of freedom and respect and honor. And here at Impact, we aspire to cultivate, protect, and nurture the love of the Spirit in our fellowship. We are called by God to be a mercy-based place where it's safe to be real. You don't have to pretend. If you're having a hard time, you can be here having a hard time. If you're being blessed, you can be here being blessed. When you're, ha- when you're having a hard time, this is a good place to be. When you're having a hard time, that's not the time to stay away from church. That's the time to be there. That's the time to be there. It's kind of a hospital part of who we are. You're, you're hurting, you're needing something. So you come here and God meets you here with his presence, with his spirit and through the love of other people in the room. But listen, nobody here wants to live in the hospital all the time. So when you come here and you get help and healed and encouraged, and then you're feeling good. That's not the time to stay away either. Come on, you got something to give. You got something to be a blessing rather than just be blessed. That's the way. That's the way it's meant to work. The Colossians were learning this kind of faith and love and hope from Epaphras, who Paul knew well. He was actually with Paul when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. And in the letter, Paul called him out and recognized him as a faithful minister of Christ. And guess what word he used for faithful? a be-believing minister of Christ. Later in Colossians, Paul identified Epaphras as a prayer warrior who was also watching over and shepherding not only the work at Colossae, but also two other fellowships of believers in Laodicea and Heropolis. Paul wrote that Epaphras was always wrestling in prayer for all of them to stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge, and that's the word experiential knowledge, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. Now, my original thought as we headed into this new year was to cover each one of these opening prayers in a weekend. But as I started digging into this opening prayer to the Colossians, there was too much here to blitz through in one weekend message. In the opening sentence of this opening prayer, there are several, what did he really mean can be lost in translation words and phrases. We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you. That fill you is the same word for, for fulfill that Paul used in his opening prayer to the Thessalonians. In Greek, it means to make replete, to cram a net full, to level up a hollow place, to fully furnish, to satisfy, to verify. This time, Paul attached this filling to the experiential knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And listen, as good as it is, to have the undeniable hand of God being seen, evident, and fulfilled in every resolve that we have to walk out God's gracious purposes and goodness. And as good as it is to have the undeniable hand of God being seen and evident and fulfilled in every act prompted by our faith, those things we talked about last week, what we really all need the most is a filled and growing base of the experiential knowledge of God's will. Experiential knowledge is just what it sounds like. It, it does include the accumulation of study to show yourself approved, life facts, theology, and other pertinent information. But all of that informational learning is then matched up and fleshed out with practical, hands-on, on-the-job training, learning, and evaluation. It works like this. We hear the word, and we put it into practice, and then we evaluate the fruit. And then we take what we learned and we put it into practice, and we evaluate the fruit on and on and on, over and over and over again throughout the rest of our lives. And then our experiential knowledge gets stored in our hearts rather than in our heads. I found that to be really, really important because what I found is when we get squeezed, when life suddenly goes sideways, when things happen to us that weren't in our control or we didn't see coming, if all we've got is stuff stored up in our head, we, it gets jumbled, it gets confusing, we don't have access, it's hard to take hold of it. But when we get squeezed and life happens that way, what we have in our hearts is who we are and what we have to fight and what we have to stand with. And God wants to fill our hearts with the experiential knowledge of God. He wants us to be overflowing with that kind of goodness so that through it all, through it all, it is well. Through it all, we come out with our faith in Christ intact. The experiential knowledge of God's will refers to the experiential knowledge of what is God's determination. That calls us to uh, a diligent obedience to God's work being done God's ways. And we can align ourselves with that, with prayers and wholehearted commitments like, not my will, but your will be done. And your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in and through my life. I'm not just waiting for heaven to be moving in sync with God. I can do that now. I can draw that down now into my life. I can pray that into my life. In order for any of us to consistently do God's will, we have to stay engaged in the process of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the challenge of Romans 12 is just as relevant today as ever. In view of God's mercy, present yourselves to God as living sacrifices. And then stop. There's that word again. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world. 
Those are critical, essential choices we have to keep making over and over again. And the promise of Romans 12 is if we do that, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Actually, it says to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And for clarity's sake, his good, pleasing, and perfect will describes three aspects of God's will, not three different options or three different levels. And here's what's really fascinating about God's will. God in his sovereignty has determined that his will is an active choice will. Now, without doubt, God knows the plans he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. And in many brilliant and creative ways, God makes his will known to us. And then he works with our choices. He works with our compliance. He even works with our resistance. God works with our responses to bring about the most loving outcome. Now, some people think about that as God's permissive will. But I think that's a miss because it puts the blame on God for our choices. I think that's not the right way. I think the right way to think about it, because God doesn't force us to act. He loves us too much to do that. The right way to think about it is as God's active choice will. He loves us enough so that every choice creates a consequence. That's the way he set up the world. Good choices create good consequences. Bad choices create bad consequences. He loves us so much that he won't let us get away with just being crazy forever. He, he, he works in our hearts. He works in our lives. He does things to try to bring us to sanity and bring us to salvation. One time Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and uh, he was confronted by a group of chief priests and elders of the people who were challenging his authority to do what he was doing. And Jesus told him a parable about two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And the other son answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. When it comes to doing God's will, our words are important. But our actions speak louder than our words. And ultimately, our actions are more important and more telling. And lessons like that are how we get filled full, deep, and clear with the experiential knowledge of God's will. And as we align and discipline ourselves to be doers of the word, not hearers only, and as we live led by and in step with the Holy Spirit, we'll discover greater access to a more thorough understanding of God's ways and how God works. There's also an element of progressive revelation attached to experiential knowledge of God's will. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. So in each experience... There's something to learn. There's something to glean, something more to be revealed and understood as we walk it out. Over in Isaiah 55, it says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But fortunately, God loves to reveal his will and his ways and his thoughts to us by the Holy Spirit. God wants each of us to become reservoirs of every kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding. What are some of the distinctives that separate spiritual wisdom from the wisdom of the world? James 3.17 says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The Amplified says spiritual wisdom is comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God and in the understanding and discernment of spiritual things. Many years ago, I learned this truth. For a spiritual person, all things are spiritual. Don't make the mistake of having your spiritual life and your other life. If you've given your heart to Christ, every part of your life is spiritual. There's no such thing as non-spiritual. It's all spiritual in the place that we now live in Christ. The message says, wise minds and spirits attuned to God's will, wise minds and spirits attuned to God's will, acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. And so here's another good question. What frequency is our spirit tuned to? It's like a radio dial. There's all kinds of choices. There's all kinds of voices out there. There's voices of the enemy. There's our own thoughts. There's our own ideas, the things other people say. I mean, we are completely overrun. You can find somebody else's thought or opinion added to yours in a hundred different ways. But when you find the voice of the Holy Spirit, lock onto that and quit listening to the other ones. Quit listening. Hearts and minds attuned to the God's will acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. This Greek word for wisdom comes from the word that means practical skill and acumen. So at its core, it's not so much about the intellectual and academic as it's about practical, boots on the ground, life in the arena abilities. Not watching from the stands, everything's going on, but life in the arena. And it's a kind of wisdom that's saturated with keen insight. It has an acumen to see beyond the surface, to see deeper, to perceive and discern more than just meets the eye along with the ability to work through and solve challenging problems, situations, and circumstances. And this kind of wisdom gets sharper and more piercing over time and with practice. There aren't any microwave shortcuts into this kind of wisdom. This Greek word for understanding does refer to our intellect. Intellect can be defined as the capacity for understanding, thinking, and reasoning as distinct from feelings and wishing. When we choose not to lean in our own understanding, and instead, in all our ways, we acknowledge God. Our intellect and our comprehension will be significantly increased and expanded. And remember, true understanding only comes from living in a submitted relationship with God. Understanding. We're under Him. We recognize we are under Him. But instead of bowed down and on our faces, by His mercy and by His grace, we are under Him, but standing with Him. Standing yoked with Jesus on the move. On the move with Jesus, learning from him, walking with him, being taught by him. And as we do that, we'll receive all the divine help we need to properly put things together mentally. Spiritual wisdom and understanding are both experiences of the new, fresh self that God desires to clothe us in. According to Ephesians 4, as we put off our old self, which is constantly being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and as we are made new in the attitude of our minds, God will clothe us in that new fresh self that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Spiritual wisdom and understanding change our worldview and change our paradigm. And in the midst of a fallen world filled with pain and hurt and disappointment and suffering, we really do need to stay connected to this kind of spiritual downflow and filling. We have a choice. We can trust God and we can walk with him joyfully, not like hip, sometimes it's hip hop happy, but the joyfully is like, he's got me. Just a quiet confidence, he's, he's got me. And let me encourage you to be beyond that, be expressively thankful. 
The more we thank God, the more we find him and see him in our everyday lives. We have a choice. We can live like that. Or we can get frustrated with God not doing what we ask him to do, how we ask him to do it, when we ask him to do it. And that frustration deceives us and tricks us into stepping out from under the flow of God's spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if or when that happens to us, here's a good question to ask ourselves. Well, how's that working out for you? And then the next things to do are repent, receive God's forgiveness, and get back under the flow. At other times, we may be tempted or get disillusioned with God in light of some tragedy or injustice taking place in our lives or in the lives of somebody we love or just in the world at large. And this thought gets tossed out like a spiritual hand grenade. How can a loving God justify the existence of such evil things as that? Now, let me just tell you, learn to recognize that voice that's asking that question because that is not the Holy Spirit. Recognize that voice and stop listening to that voice. How can a loving God allow this to happen? How can he justify it? It's a wrong question. The loving God we serve is not committed to justifying things. Instead, he's all in committed to redeeming all things. God is at work making all things new. Our God has the ability to make everything beautiful in its time. He can even take what was meant for evil against us and turn it around, turn it around, turn it around and use it for our good. As much loved sons and daughters of God, we can stay confident and grounded in the truth of Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that means us. Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the experiential knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And after that, Paul wrote, we pray this in order that, but I don't have time to talk about that this weekend. So I'll pick up right there next week and we'll unpack that next weekend. Let me finish with this reminder. Let me finish with this reminder. All of the Holy Spirit inspired words of scripture are not meant to just live on the page and be quickly read over. Instead, they are living and active. And they are aimed at our heart and our will and our emotions and our mind and our strength for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. Whenever we get a bunch of teaching points and applications points stuffed into a sermon like this or, or stuffed into an opening prayer or even just when we're reading through a letter like Colossians ourselves, there can be a tendency to think, well, those are some pretty good ideas. You know, I'll get around to being or doing that sometime soon. Well, did you know that less than a year after Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, a major earthquake hit their region, and it looks like the whole town of Colossae was completely destroyed. Less than a year after they got this letter from Paul. All that to say, there is no time like the present. Let's not put off for tomorrow what we can be applying and doing today. The first few applications of truths and encouragement in this introduction to an opening prayer are ready and waiting. And as we like to say around here, what are we waiting for? Let's stand together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It really is living and active. And it's layers, layers of revelation, layers of truth filled with applications 
things for us to be, things for us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that in your mercy and in your grace, you saw fit to have a letter written by a man almost 2,000 years ago to, to a small church almost 2,000 years ago to still be living and breathing in our day and to still be open to us today to take and to embrace and to learn from and to apply to our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I ask you, Lord, I really, I really do. I, I pray you'd help us just be done with doubt, that we would embrace stop doubting and believe, that, that be believing would become more and more of who we are, not just I've got a faith box I can check, but I've got a faith that I'm living. I've got a faith that is changing the way I work through and process through every day. I've got a faith that affects the way I see people and relate to people and respond to people. I've got a faith that's changing me from the inside out and conforming me more and more into the image of Christ, even as my Father God dresses me in an outer garment that is made to look like Him in true righteousness and holiness. Lord, you are so, so good to us. You deserve, you deserve to have some people living on the planet right now as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, bringing honor and bringing glory to you, filled, filled with the experiential knowledge of your will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. We wanna be some of those. So do it in our lives. And we thank you for that privilege and opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So good.